Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Hey everybody, welcome back to more conversations here on the Cattleman's Call podcast. I'm Lane Nordland having another conversation that took place during the 2023 Cattle Industry Convention and NCBA Trade Show. And I tell you what, folks, it was a great opportunity for cattlemen and women and industry stakeholders and leaders to come together, advocate for the future of the livestock business, but also network, see old friends, and learn about the latest and greatest innovations there on the trade show floor. And uh, at the conclusion of our time in New Orleans... Don Schiefelbein handed over the gavel of the presidency of NCBA to South Dakota's Todd Wilkinson. And he's uh, taking a few minutes here with us here today to just catch up and, and learn more about him. But, Todd, how, how are things going down here in New Orleans this week? I, Lane, I, I, it's so refreshing to see the optimism out in the countryside. And, and then you get a bunch of cattle producers that are actually got maybe a little more jingle in their pocket for a change. And 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 it looks great for the next three, four, five years. Uh, th- this is a fun place to be. And uh, and, and there is that uh, that optimism too. But and we all know we're all crossing our fingers that nothing nothing gets in the way of these higher prices and uh, that we get some moisture. I just talked with Matt Makins. Uh, a meteorologist who works with NCBA, and of course he presented yesterday at the Cattle Facts and Forum and. Uh, yeah, it's just nice to have that optimism uh, for the past few years. Because, I mean, uh, especially in, in our country, in Montana and South Dakota, it's been so dang droughty. What, what, what's it been like the last uh, uh, few weeks? I know we all, we all got that cold snap uh, right before Christmas, but uh, uh, how, how have things been here in the first part of the year? Yeah, we're back into that cold snap again at, at home right now. So I, I think it was 17, 18 below. Uh, but, you, you know, up in our area, people hear those numbers and they think we're all Eskimos. But re- really, uh, that's not so bad. It's it's when it gets down to that 30 below and you get the 30-mile-an-hour wind chill. Yep. Um, that that gets a little tougher. But, you know, the, the thing that's happened uh, is we've got some snow. Yep. And I, I, as I'm explaining to, to people, we've kind of got an old-fashioned South Dakota winter. And normally... Uh, that's maybe not so good, but boy, this year we need the moisture. Yeah, same, same over at home there. And, uh, and jumping back to that conversation I just had with Matt, um, he was he was discussing, you know, we're going to see a lot of snow most likely up up in our region uh, and right during calving time for us in March, April, which is good. We need that snowpack. We need the runoff, and I'm not, not going to cuss the snow, uh, but uh, – it's just good to give a, our producers a little bit of a heads up. But, you know, Todd, coming in to the presidency here, um, just for our, our, our listeners' knowledge, you don't just show up to the convention this year and, and campaign and get voted on right here and there. You, you, uh, you have to spend the time going through various leadership roles um, and serving in different capacities in, in CBA and you know, uh, that's what I really want to talk about here today, an uh, introduction to our our listeners out there. And uh, I, I guess, how, how did you get involved with NCBA? Let's start there. Um, uh, did, did that start one day when you got encouraged to go to a local county uh, cattleman's meeting? Hey, actually, that is where it started. I, uh, my local affiliate is the Kingsbury County uh, Cattlemen's Association of the South Dakota Cattlemen's Association. And you know, I, I was, we were getting more and more cattle on the ground, more more calves, building a feedlot, 
And my dad is, uh, or was, a Marine Corps Master Sergeant, and what he told he told his three boys is, if you're going to get involved in something, get involved. Don't uh, stand on the sidelines. So I think we've all taken that to heart in our various uh, uh, lives, and that meant for me uh, either put up or shut up, and I had to get involved in my Cattlemen's Association. What was really amazing to me, uh, and I worked my way up um, through my local affiliate and then ended up uh, getting elected to the South Dakota Cattlemen's uh, as president. It was in that vein, uh, as I was going through the various chairs in the South Dakota Association, that I got to go to my first NCBA meeting. And wow, what a shock. Uh, I, had, I had no idea that this organization was as powerful and, and could accomplish things the way that it does. And once I saw that if you really step in and, and do the hard work that you can move the needle, uh, I was, you know, at that point I was committed. And uh, what was that like moving up for various vice chairs and chairs as well? I, I think that's important to talk about too, is just spending the time uh, representing producers from your region as well. But uh, what, were some, what, what were the committees you served on before uh, jumping on the exec team? Well, I was way back. I was on uh, the environmental working group because uh, being a feedlot owner, we were very concerned about uh, the EPA regulations back at that time. So it was a small working group that was developing things, not one of the big committees here. And then from that, I, I ended up on, on uh, federal lands, which uh, is, is maybe an odd place uh, for me to land because I'm on the eastern side of South Dakota, mm -hmm. not the western side of South Dakota. But it seems to impact our, our uh, cattle production in the western part of the United States so much. So I, I really got in, enthused in that. And I've been on a number of working groups since then. Um, I just finished uh, chairing the traceability working group. But as I went through those steps, and I don't know if a lot of people realize how it works. It, it, you know, you, you have to get nominated by your state organization for a position. And then you have to go through an interview process in front of the nominating committee. And I think I ran against a gentleman uh, from Kentucky or, or Virginia, perhaps, a long time ago. And... Um, you know that's kind of nerve-wracking when you're you're interviewing for that, and then, and then you take the next step, and there's another one, and then there's mm -hmm. another one. I, I don't want to dissuade anybody from going through the process. Uh, it's it's a learning process. You get more and more ability to see what's going on all across the country with each one of those steps. And one of the one of the spots that I enjoyed uh, the most was when I was. Uh, my regional vice president or for, for our area, I was with uh, Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, and North Dakota. So kind of the swath right down the middle of the upper part of the country. And I had obviously two huge feeder states uh, and then yep. two very predominant cow-calf states. Uh, that gave me a diversification um, and, and just the ability to see different producers doing during different things. So uh, well, let's talk about your operation as well. Um, 
what's it like in continuing on that uh, family legacy as well with your son and and uh, oh, but uh, let's paint a picture about uh, what the day-to-day is like well the day-to-day we we run about three 350 cows um, and that cow calf operation is is kind of where my heart is I guess uh, I enjoy that part and we also do a background yard and then my family uh, owns a a feedlot uh, facility feeding under monoslopes so I've been kind of involved in all facets of that I don't get out to uh, the feedlot operation as much as I used to um, frankly it used to be a really good escape for me <laughs> to um, and, and your listeners are going to get a kick out of this but one of the best things I could do is hop in the manure truck and go home manure because I, I could get away from everything else and and just not, not have to worry about things so that that part um i'm not there as much because we have operators that are that are handling all of that now but my son and and my background yard and and our personal feed yard and then our cow calf operation you know the kind of the fun things that and again your listeners are going to understand this but the ability to get out and work cattle and and um you know, do the hard work and feel like you've accomplished something at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. That that's kind of gratifying. Yeah. Oh no. I mean, I obviously I talk for a living. We have cows, but there's days where I get the job done on air and whatnot. But I feel a lot more accomplished building fence or working cows, and it's a stress reliever. <laughs> it <laughs> Some is. Days. It is. So, you know, <laughs> considering my, the other part of my life, I mean, uh, the other part of my life is in, I'm in a law office, so. Uh, you know that it, it's a different type of of uh, relaxation. I I probably am one of those people that typically does 80 to 90 hours a week, and and it's uh, probably 50-50 between the cattle operation and, and my office. So sometimes being able to get out and do some things and enjoy the countryside is gratifying. So what led you uh, to a career in law? Well, my dad was was an attorney. Um, so it I, ironically, I went off and uh, played college football, and at that point, I was I was wide open to what I wanted to do. And where, where'd you go? Where'd you go to? I went to a little uh, private school in, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, okay. Augustana College. Yep. But you know, I had grown up working in uh, the livestock side because when I was I don't know eight, nine, ten, somewhere in there. Uh, we we got a bunch of heifers, and my brothers were off to college, and my dad wasn't about to feed those heifers, so my brothers made a deal with me. Uh, if you feed them, you take care of them all through the winter. Uh, we'll give you a heifer calf at the end of the year. Uh, so like many uh, producers have over the years, that was the uh, genesis of my herd. Mm-hmm. And over the years, I I... It worked out well for my brothers, too, because I think I got paid dirt cheap that way. But, uh, you know, it, it was kind of rewarding. And then you got the, the herd builds and you and you, so you go on. Um, but as I went to college, I, I had to make a choice. Um, what am I going to do? Am I, am I going to continue in this uh, business or am I going to go into a different one? I looked at my dad and appreciated what he did in both facets a big lover of the farm and and farming operations but 
I'm a tad bit of a competitor, so um, and can be known to be a little ornery in terms of trying to want to get in a fight and make and make a difference. So that generated me over to uh, the law, and then what happened from there is no sooner do I get into the law than I'm I'm moving over in to defend um, agricultural producers in a in a three state area and and have kind of developed a, a a niche for doing that. So then obviously getting to, you know, have a legal practice as well, then getting also involved in production ag. Uh, how, how did that, uh, did, did you maintain your presence on the ranch there? Or did you spend uh, 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 some time off focused solely on law or has it always been uh, splitting that? Oh, I've always had a little bit of a, of a footprint there. Obviously when I was at uh, undergraduate and then at law school, it became a little more difficult, but Unfortunately or fortunately, I, I could never get away from uh, um, my affinity for agriculture and, and the, the love of nature. And I was uh, fortunate enough to marry a little gal whose dad was um, owner of two auction barns. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think at that point I was sunk. So <laughs> I, was, I, was in, I was in ag at that point because um, I, I, my wife was deeply committed to to the ag sector, and and that's the way we decided to raise our kids. Yep. Well, and I, I was uh, I loved it the other day uh, when I was emceeing the ESAP banquet, seeing all your grandkids running around. What, what's that mean to have them travel all the way down here? I know the weather wasn't the greatest either, but uh, what what's it mean to have family down here as you you take the helm of the organization for the next year? Yeah. Uh, well, it means the world to me. Um, you you just have to understand that. Uh, I lost my wife a year and a half ago, and for me to be able to have my family here was very gratifying. And uh, like I said, I just love seeing kids at these events, and because uh, it is that next generation too. It, it is, and the funny thing with it, I got two sets of twins and those nine grandkids, and you know they range from uh, the twin three-year-olds and then on up to. My oldest granddaughter just turned 14, so there's quite a spread, uh, and there there are a lot of little ones in there, and they they have a lot of fun. Uh, just watching my kids, as as you can well imagine, uh, my son has really had to shoulder um, a bigger burden with me being gone this much, and uh, my youngest daughter is uh, a paralegal in my law firm, and frankly, without without those two i i wouldn't be sitting here having this interview with you today yep. well that's one thing too that our listeners that are and i would never discourage anyone from wanting to serve in in these volunteer roles because they are voluntary you don't get paid nope. you have a lot of stress you're on the road for hundreds of days a year advocating for the livestock industry but uh it, it uh it does have uh it come comes with its challenges but uh families support each other they understand the importance of that the future of this industry relies on the on volunteer leaders stepping up over the years yeah and and you know the the fact that i i'm i got 18 people that are affiliated with me down here for this event uh, i didn't ask them to come they they made that choice boy they did burn up my frequent flyer miles so uh, <laughs> it, it it is just rewarding to see them and i hope that this is a memory that they have of their grandpa. Yep. 
And, and so with your son out on the operation, um, is that something that he always wanted to, to do? Or, or did he did he go for another career for a little while, or he knew he was always going to be a cattleman? Well, he, he grew up working on the farm and on the ranch to, from a little tyke, but it was it was uh, a little bit of a push from dad to get him away from the operation. I <laughs> uh, had a football scholarship and I thought, you know, get away from the operation. Don't don't just think you got to be here. And so I pushed him pretty hard into into college football. Um, that didn't work very well. And he decided to switch to um, SDSU from the university he was at. And finally, at the end of, of that first year, he, he came to me and he said, Dad, this isn't working. I want to go to Votech. I want to get my diesel uh, degree, and I want to come back and contribute to the farm. And, oh, that was been awesome. I mean, the fact that he knew what he wanted to do at that age, uh, I, I just wanted him to experience life, and I didn't want to be the one that said you had to come home. He is so he is in his element. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is he is truly in his element. And uh, well, I guess when we look at that operation, you know, what 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 are some of the goals that that you and and he have in the family and, and making sure that uh, the legacy can continue on and, and the passion that that his children and all your grandchildren will have for the industry. I, I have a 16 month old, and uh, it's it's interesting to to think about that stuff nowadays. Um, but being a dad, a grandpa, uh, what, what do you hope that uh, they will be able to achieve in their lives and still have respect or be involved in agriculture production? Well, I've had instilled in me from, from early childhood uh, that they don't make any more dirt, and we need to respect the dirt. And uh, my father really, really uh, got that point across to all of us. And and I, I believe uh, my kids have uh, got that bug now because, you know, I've, I'm, we're not a big operation by any means. And if I divided it up after I'm gone and each of my kids got a third of it, it would cripple my son's operation because I would, I would be taking massive parts mm-hmm. of the base away. And my, both of my girls are, are committed to, to uh, being a part of it. And that would have been easy for them not to be a part of it. And now I, I'm, my older set of twins, uh, their dad runs a cow-calf operation in, or a feeding operation, excuse me, in Minnesota. So uh, I've, got, I've got all facets of my grandkids <laughs> that, are, that are involved in the, in the cattle industry in one fashion or another. And I, I think my oldest granddaughter said it best when, uh, when, she, when she got a sweatshirt that said, uh, just call me a cowgirl, and I thought, <laughs> wow, you know, uh, that's a pretty good deal. So I guess what, what advice do you have for families out there that are looking at transitioning, um, having, I call them the uh, awkward conversations about uh, whether that is a generational plan, uh, setting up a, the, the family business to get transitioned so you don't break the place if something happens, and, and, and having a will. Yeah, I, if you only knew how many times uh, in my now almost 39 years of practicing law, I've had this discussion with, with uh, clients and families. I have seen very successful operations ground to a halt where there was no planning. 
and I've, I've seen struggling operations excel where they did planning and, and really made a plan for the future and, and watched it go forward. The worst thing that you can do from my perspective as a guy that's been sitting on both sides of the desk in this deal is, is to do nothing. I mean, doing nothing ensures uh, disharmony in the family. You know, you, you still want to be able to go to family Christmas after some tragic event happens, and, and you want to keep your family together. You know, you know, God is fortunate, or we are fortunate to have been given some assets uh, by God, and we're, we're the protector of those assets. And take the time, uh, go sit down with uh, the, that estate uh, planning person or your attorney or accountant or whoever you want, uh, but take the time to start the conversation. Once you start the conversation, it's, easy, it's way easier. I always tell folks when they come in to see me, I said, just paint me a picture. Give me a big picture uh, of where you want to be, how you want your goals to be handled. Don't worry about the minutia. We'll fill in the minutia in, in the process. Just paint me a picture, and then we can go ahead and move forward. Well, thanks for sharing that insight. It's just... And, and, and like I say, it's that awkward conversation because when when your kids get out of college, you know, you maybe just got through that transition with your folks. And by the time, <laughs> like, I can't believe my daughter's as old as she is now at 16 months. And I understand what my folks thought, how fast things go in the blink of an eye. So, so, so thanks for sharing that aspect, too, of just having those conversations and, and, and working ahead. And yeah, I mean, when the snow is coming in, we prepare for a snowstorm and to take care of our cattle. We can, we can do a little bit of legwork too, to, to help uh, keep an operation going and, and families together as well. And, you know, kind of transitioning back to your leadership role, I, I guess, what have you enjoyed the most uh, about being in leadership uh, within CBA? Well, and this is going to sound corny, but uh, the people I got to work with, I mean, um, you know, the, the folks that are involved in the industry and that are really involved in the industry are just some amazing people. And they could have been successful in whatever they wanted to do, but they're, they're in the industry because their heart puts them there. And, you know, that guy or that gal, uh, just the breadth of knowledge that is out there and the fact that we're all usually pulling in the same direction is pretty helpful. And I, and I, I know that, you know, the usual answer is probably the people, but it's really the people I work with. And, and then getting across the country is, is eye-opening. You know, um, I have to, to tell you that um, my greenhorn um, uh, situation came out. I happened to be in the Alabama... Um, convention and I was I was down there doing it and I was I you know it was the spring and I knew I had calving going on at home so I I asked the guys how's it how's calving coming and they all kind of looked at me and like uh, mm, what's he talking about and then the other guy says uh, we calve in the fall that's oh I didn't realize that you know I uh, so you feel really stupid but uh, seeing the different operations Underlying all of that, though, is, is really people that have, have the environment, have their family, and, and they just want to 
have a good lifestyle. You know, Yellowstone and the whole TV thing and all of that stuff. Uh, a calf jumping out, already tagged, um, always surprises me. But uh, I have never got one of those yet. But <laughs> the, the, uh, the iconic Western image, um, you know, maybe that's what the public is going to identify us with. Uh, those wide open spaces and and things like that. There's big other parts of the industry, uh, however, whether it's uh, whether that's that operation on the East Coast or or that uh, feeding facility or you know lots of lots of things involved in the cattle business. And I hope we just identify that these are the people that are putting food on our plate and they care more than anything. Uh, that they do it right, and that the customer have a good experience. So being on the road, talking with, with all these producers, hearing different perspectives, maybe getting criticism along the way as well, it, it comes with the job. But I guess what's been the most eye-opening experience out on the road? Probably the differences in operation. I mean, uh, you know, we all get um, stereotyped into what we think has happens in in the cattle business but it there is so much diversity in in how people handle things or how what their operations do or what their niche is i mean there's a whole bunch of niche things in in uh, in ranching and in farming um you know they kind of lump us all together and, and when you get out on the road you find that unique operation that's supplementing their income by doing x or y or 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 they're 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 making a new product that um somebody else never thought about the innovative nature of people to adapt and survive and make a living in the production agriculture is is pretty impressive now we we know just how important it is to to have a market for our our beef and, and creating those marketing opportunities. So you know you serve the local communities and uh, we we know how important that global marketplace is. But what's it like sharing the story of just how important the livestock industry is to our rural communities and, and those local economies still today? Well, that's a share a story that has to be shared, and and sometimes we do a good job on it, and sometimes we don't. Um, I'm, as you travel and you're on an airplane a lot, um, you naturally have conversations uh, from people all over the country and really the world, and uh, a lot of folks don't know what we do, and 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 then you know it, it's. It's the funny statement, right? You, where do you get your meat? You go to the restaurant. But, you know, there's people that believe that. I, I you know, I, I thought that was a joke and until you actually get engaged with people that, um, you know, the corn comes in a can from the grocery store and the, and the bacon sliced at the, at the restaurant. Uh, um, it, that, that mentality because people have been removed from the farm and the ranch for so many generations now is is the norm rather than the exception and i hope your listeners take the opportunity to just be an advocate i mean i'm not talking about you know doing it full-time or anything just just talk about what you do people are amazed at how much you care and and about your job and when you 
get to talk about uh, working with a calf or making a bull selection or something like that, they actually are interested. So if, if, I, if I gain nothing out of, out of my years in NCBA, I hope I, I gain from having spread the message of, hey, this is the future of, of our food supply and these are the people that are the salt of the earth. Well, and to ensure that future, obviously, uh, the policy book gets set, added to, um, amended every single year here at convention. And uh, may- maybe talk about how the members make the policy, but uh, and then also talk about the priorities uh, for the organization uh, for the next year as well that were really established this week. Well, and, and certainly we're, we're at a point right now we're dealing with Farm Bill, right? So... Um, Farm bill is going to expire in September. Uh, the farm bill, you know, it <clears throat> we're a little different than than corn, beans, and wheat because there's crop insurance, but there is another product that's available for uh, production cattle business, and and that um, livestock risk insurance product out there is becoming more and more useful. You know, when I first looked at it, probably I don't know five years ago or more. Um, it, it was it was kind of too costly. Uh, there wasn't enough uh, backing by the federal government. That product has really really changed uh, the the landscape a bit because you can d- deal with that with one cow or or two thousand cows. So that product and getting advancements in it in this farm bill is is critically important. And one of the other major ones that uh, that that we are as an industry driving as hard as we can is animal disease traceability the ability to protect us from a foot and mouth disease that uh, is right offshore if COVID has demonstrated anything to us it has demonstrated how susceptible we are to a, a, a virus or an outbreak of disease that can really impact us and you know you look you look at the globe and the map um, shows the spread of foot and mouth in um, virtually every uh, continent. Uh, you know, we're fortunate enough in the North America to be foot and mouth free. But then you look at how the, how the world travels and, and how that's impacted. And you talk to all of the experts and they, they will tell you it's not a matter of if we're going to get uh, foot and mouth, it's when. And we have the technology today to be able to isolate that animal quickly, efficiently, and not shut down the entire industry for long periods of time. And that's going to come by way of electronic uh, data being shared with, through your state uh, health organiz- vet organization. And for us to be reliant upon paper documents and not having an effective means to trace an animal if there is a disease outbreak of any sort, um, it, that, that simply means we're not doing our job. And NCBA uh, is, while this issue is certainly not uh, new and it's not universally well received across the countryside, the fact is I, I think the NCBA membership understands that if they wanna protect their herd, it's, it's kind of like buying pickup insurance. Uh, if you don't protect your herd, 
then you're going to impact your neighbor if you have an outbreak. And it, and I, I really hope that we do that. I, I, I hope that we take the we take the time, and uh, it is going to cost us a little bit of money. I mean, um, we're we're EID and our herd at home, and, and and have been and have been doing it for a long time, but the, that priority is is right to the top right now. And I, you know, I'd be remiss if I if I didn't bring up like adequate funding for Equip and and some of those programs out there because those are cost effective for the producer and it, and it helps uh, develop things for the producer. And as I alluded to when we were talking about those priorities, it's the NCBA members that set that policy and, and the direction. How does that policy get created? Again, this isn't just Todd Wilkinson saying, this is what I'm gonna do. Uh, this is what I've been dictated to do. Th- this is what the actual members of NCBA have directed the organization to do. Yeah, and I think that's what really distinguishes NCBA from so much else out there. This is not a top-down driven um, organization. You know, I I watched uh, my local affiliate years ago. Uh, I don't even remember what the issue was, but they took it up through the process and we ended up uh, passing state uh, policy in South Dakota, and then we ended up going and getting the law changed. And I've seen that happen uh, across the country. Uh, you know, uh, the whole CFAP deal, if you don't think that, that that was driven by the producers asking NCBA to go into that and get those payments, um, you know, if we all just sat on the sidelines, there were none of those payments would have existed in ag. So that is a clear indication of what uh, what an industry can do, but it has to come from that producer, from that rancher, that that gal out there. That's she's got a, a, a burning issue and she wants to know how to correct it. And taking that policy to your local affiliate and, and then working it on through your state organization. So we just reviewed resolutions um, yesterday and then multiple committee means while they were here. And that's how the traceability process is working through. It all came from the ground. And, and now we, we have a policy that we will go. So I, that's my marching orders as an officer, right? Uh, the policy. I take that policy book and our staff in Denver and in Washington, D.C., we each take that policy book, and that's what we go and advocate for. And with that, you know, you talked about that farm bill, and it's going to be a challenge over the, the, the next few weeks and months to, to even pass it in 2023. But it's going to be interesting to watch that uh, with, with the team out in D.C. And, and the footwork that they'll put forward. And, you know, just a shout-out, the uh, – the uh, legislative fly-in is going to occur in April, I believe. I don't have the exact dates in front of me right there, but that's a great time for producers that maybe they couldn't make convention, but uh, you know maybe could find find some time to make it to to that event and, and be boots on the ground and learn about these issues uh, and take your state issues as well to those elected officials and those appointed agency people as well and and talk face to face because that's that's so valuable. But and I said it the other night at the Environmental Stewardship Award banquet, there's nothing better than taking that national 
winter announcement to Washington, D.C. as well, because that's where everything is decided in this nation. And when we can take our story to them and the, the big the big shakers, movers and shakers will be there. We know that will happen. Yep. Um, how important is that? that presence we have in dc and and again i uh, esop's just one of the the that's just a, a great opportunity but the presence that ncba has in dc well i think that really sets the organization apart right so if if you're going to move the needle you need to be where the policy makers are at and you know, it may come as a big surprise to people, but most of the people in the Washington Beltway really don't have a clue what we're doing in the rest of the world. And, uh, you know, I'm saying that facetiously, but the fact is uh, we got people making rules and regulations about how we work and our job. And unless they hear from actual producers and people that know how this is going to impact them, they just think it's right another rule. And... And then suddenly you've got uh, an issue like WOTUS or something like that uh, with a land grab impacting you. And I guess that w one thing I'd want to make sure I share with this listening group is with the, with the election that just happened, the fact that we have a divided Congress, we can anticipate there's not going to be a lot legislatively that's going to get passed. But the administration has clearly demonstrated that they are going to regulate uh, us. Um, and, they're, and they're trying to put some pretty onerous regulations out there right now. So be, be, be aware of that and work through your NCBA DC staff because that's what they're there for. That's what you're paying your membership for is to have somebody that can put you in touch with the right person at the right time. And what's your message to a producer out there that is on the fence about joining a state association or, or paying their dues to NCBA? Um, maybe just because they have some concerns or they, they maybe don't uh, have the resources to what that policy book looks like. I guess what's a message to a cow-calf producer that's out feeding cows right now that uh, listens to this podcast but maybe isn't a member yet? First of all, a membership is not expensive. And... Uh, you know, I know that everybody is not going to agree with every issue that I, uh, I or the NCBA organization comes up with, but we probably are going to agree on 80 to 90 percent of it. And, um, you know, if, if you take the attitude that I don't want to join, I'm not going to join anything. I'm just, I'm just going to do my job and I'm going to do it well and I'm, I'm simply going to go on with life. Hey, you can do that. You, you you can have a wonderful operation and be very successful, but don't complain when the train runs over your head because that, that regulation or that new law um, or that new zoning requirement, uh, all of those issues are coming at you. And without your input, they're, they're going to happen. And it's through an organization like NCBA and, and the local state affiliates that you can really impact what happens. You, I, I just wish everybody could see what I see after this many years, uh, how one producer with a specific issue, with some tenacity, can move it up the food chain and actually make something happen. You know, that doesn't happen in, in a lot of the business world. 
And for us to have an, an engine, you know, I'm going to uh, equate it to, you know, we've got the Ferrari sitting in, in this uh, D.C. right now with a bunch of uh, super uh, people that know how to get the message across. If you get them your message and it becomes part of policy, they will work um, till they absolutely drop to help you get that passed. So you got, you got all the tools out there, folks. Yeah, you, sure, you're gonna have to join the organization. It is not inexpensive to have um, people in Denver and people in Washington, D.C., but that, that's what they're there for. That's what we're paying for. And, um, and we just have a great staff to be able to go make things happen. So as we look to the, the year ahead, there's definitely more optimism in the room here this year, especially watching uh, just the looking for higher prices as so many producers, just like me, have had to reduce herd size and, and deal with drought. And, and, and that's, that, that's just good to hear. But uh, what, what do you think are some opportunities, but along with that challenges uh, that, uh, will, that the cow-calf producer and the feeders will, will go through here in the next year to two years? Well, it's probably not a year or two years, so I'm, I'm going to bring up an issue that I think a lot of us um, maybe are overlooking. And, you know, when fake meat came out, I don't know, five, six, ten years ago, whatever it was, uh, we didn't really put much stock in it. And, and frankly, COVID has shown us that uh, that fake meat product is the public just doesn't buy it. Um, and, and I can understand why it tastes terrible. But cell cultured meat is a potential game changer to our industry and it's in its infancy right now in terms of how it it uh, how market ready it is but every time we see technology advance the fact that somebody could grow a steak in a petri dish uh, is scary it is really scary because if we don't get that product labeled for what it is, sell cultured meat, um, if that gets into the grocery stores and gets put on the meat shelf right next to my product that I'm producing and, and is not differentiated, we're going to lose. And we're going to lose badly. Uh, we, need, we need to have that cell cultured uh, meat you know because all you have to do is look to um, um, the term milk mm -hmm. and, and you, you could see that fight's been lost a long time ago and uh, America's beef producers better be attuned to that one uh, in terms of other challenges you know we all deal with weather we all deal with um, issues that that come up with you know the markets uh, they can be extremely frustrating uh, but but those, I, you know, I think we're used to dealing with those issues. The ones that we're not used to dealing with are, are some of the more burdensome regulations that are coming out. So when you're talking a year or two on the horizon, uh, two that come to mind for me right away are, are uh, WOTUS, Waters of the United States. You know, I've, I've been fighting this um, as a member of NCBA for a long time, but it appears the EPA is back to the plan of trying to um, really determine what you can do on your land 
without any input from you, and, and that's scary because that's, that's potentially a, a massive land grab. The other one that is, is really concerning to me is we're, we're seeing so much of environmental activism in the form of endangered species. Um, you know, these people think they know how to uh, deal with a species, so th th they're going to slap rules and regulations on your operation uh, because because wolf looks uh, pretty or uh, they it, it's a it's a nice touchy feely thing to do, but they don't have any idea the impact back on the ground and and we're we're probably going to be well I'm not going to I'm not shouldn't say probably we're already there uh, NCBA is going to continue to fight legally in in the courtroom to try and uh, protect uh, further deterioration and in the Endangered uh, Species Act because they, they're using it as a weapon. They're not really using it with the intent. I think a lot of people think, well, they all want to make these species thrive. Well, that may be true for some of them, but some of them just simply want to put America's um, cattle producer out of business, and they know that that's an effective tool to do it. So we're going to have to go in the courtroom, and we're going to have to win some legal battles uh, and that's all going to happen in the next year to two. Yep. Yep. Well, as our, we wrap up today's conversation, Todd, I know we both got a full slate ahead of us here this afternoon, but uh, I guess what's the last message you have to the cattlemen and women tuning in, the, the folks in agribusiness, or, or those just wanting to learn more about agriculture that are, are tuning in here today? I, you know, I, I just hope you share your story. I know that sounds like a canned thing, and... and um, you know, you, you wonder, does it really make an impact? It does. Uh, you're in a wonderful business. You wouldn't be there if, if you didn't love it. Uh, just share your opinions. Get involved. Get involved in whatever it is. Uh, you know, whether it's your state affiliate, um, hopefully I'm going to tell you to get involved in NCBA, but get involved in, and become an advocate because we're such a small part of the population anymore. Uh, if we don't tell our story, our story is going to be told for us. Yep. Well, again, congratulations, Todd, and it's great to see your family down here this week. And uh, have a great year and uh, safe travels out there. Well, thank you. Appreciate it, Elaine. All righty, friends. That will do it. Todd Wilkinson, president of the NCBA for the next year. I'm Lane Nordland. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.